We're going to ask the question today. It's in the top of your notes. It's the title. Are we certain that God keeps his promises? Now, if I just ask you, and I went around and asked every one of you, are you certain God keeps his promises? Almost all of you would say, yes, I'm certain God keeps his promises. So I don't think I need to convince you of this. But what I want to remind you of is that there's probably been a point in time in your life, it very could well be now, but there probably has been, and there may be in the future, when you're going to ask the question, is God keeping his promise to me? Do I get this promise? Is, is this something that, that works for me, fits for me? Is it applied to me? Is it my promise to claim? Something in that area, because things aren't going according to your plan, they're not even going according to a plan that you can decipher what God is doing. He's doing things in ways that don't make sense to you. And so you ask the question, is God here? Is he with me? Is he working for my good? Is he working for his glory? Is he accomplishing his will? Is he, is he making any progress? Is he reaching out to my loved one who's not saved yet? Is he reaching out to my friend who's sick? Is he, is he helping me grow? Is he helping me love my neighbor as myself? Is he, is he doing the things he said he would do? So today I want to ask that question. We have the great illustration continuing on and, and greater today than ever uh, of God doing what it takes, doing some extraordinary things to fulfill a specific promise made to Paul. And then I want to review that and I want to talk about that. So I want to remind you, this is in your notes, that God made a promise to Paul in Acts 23, 11. You can look at that. It's just a few pages back if you want to. But basically, God said to Paul, you will testify about me in Rome as you have testified in Jerusalem. As you have testified in Jerusalem. So what's he going to do? He's going to do the same things he did there. He's going to share his testimony. He's going to explain that Jesus is the Messiah or the Savior, depending on who he's talking to. They mean the same thing. He's going to offer forgiveness of sin through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which makes sense. After his testimony of salvation, then explaining salvation, he's going to offer salvation. And for those who accept salvation, number four, he's going to disciple new believers into mature believers who can and will now lead. So this is what he's done everywhere he's gone. This is what he did in Jerusalem most dramatically in Jerusalem, and this is what God said you will do in Rome. So B, the key factor, which cannot be missed, and I'm going to apologize right now, there's like, a, there's like six typos that I found in today's notes. I'm comfortable with my normal two. This time I went overboard, so I just want you to forgive me. Just fix them as you go. Uh, you see the first one right there. But the key factor, what cannot be missed, Paul must travel to Rome. In order to testify in Rome, as he did in Jerusalem, he has to get to Rome. There's a bunch of people standing in the way. There's a bunch of people trying to kill him, if you remember. So the big issue is, how is God going to get Paul to Rome? Now, that's not a problem for God. He could snap his fingers and Paul would be in Rome, if he wanted to. But working through the people that Paul's in contact with, the people who are trying to hurt him, the people that are trying to protect him, his friends and family, God is going to work his will so that Paul arrives in Rome. And by the end of our text today, Paul will be in Rome. Number two in your notes uh, is things that God has clearly done before today's text 
to make sure this promise is kept. Now, this is not all of it. These are the three things I consider the big ones. So, A, God, God placed Paul's nephew in a place to overhear the plot to ambush Paul and provide a Roman commander who would send Paul to Caesarea for protection. Uh, you, you could say it's a coincidence. You could say, wow, Paul lucked out that his nephew was standing there when these people were discussing their plan and that he was able to go tell Paul about it, and that Paul was able to get a guard to go tell the centurion about it, and the centurion cared enough about it to develop a plan so that Paul would leave town before the ambush and be protected. That's a lot of coincidences, and, and you could probably say that and convince a lot of people, but then you start adding up all the coincidences. By the time we're done, we're going to have 30 or 40 coincidences. 30 or 40 things that altogether could not simply be coincidence. They had to be arranged. So after reading all the way to the end of chapter 28, which we're going to almost do, we're going to read partially through 28, I'm convinced as I look back that God was in all of this. So I'm giving God credit for Paul's nephew being at the right place at the right time to overhear the plot so that Paul was able to be saved. I'm giving God credit for bringing a Roman centurion who was actually interested in finding out the truth to know whether Paul should be punished or not. He kept seeking after the truth, and that seeking after the truth is what protected Paul along the way. And he got to Caesarea, away from Jerusalem. So that's A. B, God caused Felix to be intrigued. Remember, Felix was interested in hearing from Paul. He was interested in hearing what was going on. That was part of why he kept him around, as well as motivated by personal gain. Remember, he wanted a bribe. So God used Felix's political ambitions, as well as his spiritual interest, to keep Paul around, to keep hearing from him. After a while, it was sort of entertaining to hear from Paul. The result of this is that Paul was held under guard for two years, with a lot of privileges, but for two years, being protected from the Jews who were actively trying to kill him. Did they ever stop wanting to kill him? No, because as soon as Festus took over, the very first thing they say is, hey, why don't you bring Paul back to Jerusalem? That's a really good idea. And the reason they said it was because the same plan was in place. They were going to ambush them along the way and kill Paul. They never stopped wanting to kill Paul, but under Roman protection in Caesarea, he was safe. Why was he there for two years? Well, I'll give you a clue a little bit later. We don't know for sure. See in your notes, God caused Festus to hear Paul's case and grant him his appeal to Caesar, thus providing a Roman escort for Paul all the way to Rome. Again, Paul is being protected by the Romans, who, by the way, are not friends of the Jewish people. They're not friends of the Christians. But God has provided a, a Roman escort and a centurion that, that, that shows favor to Paul. So God has done these things. He put Felix in place, and he took Festus in place. He brought Agrippa there so that Paul could share his testimony one last time. And, and that's where we pick up the story. So we're going to read all of chapter 27. We're going to read halfway into chapter 28. It, it's fairly long. Follow along with me. If I get to a big name and I don't feel like I can say it, I'm just going to breeze on by it. So keep going with me, okay? You, you didn't hire a great reader, and some of these names are ridiculous. Okay, verse 20, chapter 27, verse 1. 
when it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We, and I hope you saw the we in verse 1, now we have a we in verse 2. Think about who we is. Well, Luke is the writer. So we know that at least Luke is traveling with Paul. Okay, we'll talk some more about that. So verse 2, we boarded a ship from that place about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. Now we have friend number two. So we have two, two companions of Paul that we know who they are traveling with him. The next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so that they might provide for his needs. I want you to know uh, there's a, a rule among the Romans. This is a, a rule that they followed to the letter. If a prisoner escaped, the person in charge of the prisoner had to fulfill his sentence, which at that point would usually be death. So Julius letting Paul leave on his own recognizance to go visit his friends was trusting Paul a great deal and was risking his own life in the situation. But in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. From there we went out to sea again and passed to the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. I'll just tell you that this is the end of the travel season. They're kind of pushing the docket, kind of pushing their way through to sail when they really shouldn't be going on a long voyage. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing from it, for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off of Sinaitis. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the lee of Crete opposite Salmone. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lycia. Now, Fair Havens was a safe place, but it was not a fun place. It was adequate, but it was not desirable. So keep that in mind. Verse 9. Much time had been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous, because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. That's our calendar marker. That's how we know that now they're sailing, or they're trying to sail, in the time of the year when they should be harbored. They should be in port. They should not be sailing. But because Fair Haven is, is a haven, but not very fair, they want to travel on. Their, their first goal is just to get 40 miles up, up, 40 miles north into a better spot. So Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo, and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to Paul, to what Paul said, follow the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. Now, you can't really blame him for that. you got two guys on board who sail for a living, and you got a preacher. The preacher says, hey, I don't think we should sail. The two guys in charge of the ship say, yeah, I think we should. So you can't really fault him for listening to the, these folks. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, that's the not desirable part, the majority, they took a vote, decided we, that we should sail on. 
hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there, about 40 miles away. This was a harbor in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down the island. When it says a wind of hurricane force, this is a hurricane. Okay, they had a name for it because of where it came from, but this was a hurricane. So we just had a big hurricane hit Florida. You saw the damage. You've seen satellite pictures of the giant swirling 100-mile-an-hour winds in the ocean. You've seen video of the water. This is what is happening. This, this favorable wind turned into a hurricane. Verse 15. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. They lost their ability to navigate. So we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Kata, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. So the men hoisted it on board. That means that they brought the lifeboat on because it wouldn't follow them anymore. It was jumping around in the water. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. They tied the ship together. It was a wooden ship. Because they were afraid they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and the storm continued raging, we finally got, gave up all hope of being saved. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail to Crete. He got an I told you so in. Okay? Then you would have spared yourselves and the damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost, only the ship will be destroyed. Good news, bad news. You're going to live, the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men. For I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. On the 14th night, so two weeks into this hurricane, on the 14th night, we were still driven across the Adriatic Sea. That'd be the Mediterranean to us. When about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing they would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Now pay attention, this is now, this is now Paul giving instructions and we're going to see the, the centurion and the soldiers listening to Paul. So Paul has moved from a, 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 a captive, okay? And he, now he's sort of in a place of authority. So see what God has done here, okay? Then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. It's like the deal's off if these guys leave. So the soldiers cut the ropes and 
and held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. That's a, a common phrase meaning you're not going to die. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food for themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. That'd be soldiers, sailors, and prisoners. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach, where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken into pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. Remember, if they escaped, they got the penalty, which is usually death. So rather than let them escape, they would kill them, which apparently was okay. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. So the centurion again saves Paul. So it's Julius. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. So the promise made on the ship was fulfilled. Chapter 28. Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They, they were out sailing in a hurricane. Usually that ship shows up, you think, oh, what a bunch of idiots. But the ship crashed, they made it on land, and they showed unusual kindness. What they do? They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. They did more, we'll find out later. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood... And as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened himself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging on his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, the goddess Justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. That's how we know it was poisonous. They were waiting for him to die. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home, again that's that unusual kindness, and showed us generous hospitality for three days. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him, and after prayer, placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They honored us in many ways, more that unusual kindness. And when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed, which would be everything. They needed everything, more that unusual kindness. After three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island, it was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of twin gods, 
Castor and Pollux. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there three days. From there we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day the south wind came up, and on the following day we reached that place. There we found some brothers and sisters who invited us to spend a week with them. And so, and so we came to Rome. The brothers and sisters there had heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the Forum and the Three Taverns to meet us. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. So Paul has reached Rome. Remember, the promise was, you're going to get to Rome, and you're going to testify like you did in Jerusalem. We talked about what God did before today's narrative. Here's what God has done. So number three in your notes, things that God does in Acts 27 and 28 to make this promise, make sure this promise is kept. A, God arranged for at least Luke and Aristarchus to accompany Paul to Rome. Remember way back when, when Paul needed friends? Remember when he was discouraged and his co-workers were not there and he didn't have any friends and God brought some friends to be with him, to minister to him? And eventually those friends became ministry partners and then his ministry partners caught up with him and, and they were a group of friends and ministry partners. Well, now God has arranged for at least Luke and this other guy to, to accompany Paul to Rome. I want you to realize this is very unusual. This is one of the reasons I say God arranged for this. It's very unusual. The Romans were not accommodating in this way. They weren't in the practice of taking on extra passengers, taking on extra people to take care of and to feed. They were into efficiency. They weren't into kindness. They weren't into doing favors for people. But this would have been a favor. This would have been something beyond the call. We don't know why, but number two, this is most likely because, so we're guessing, that either Festus or Agrippa or both informed the centurion that Paul was innocent and should be treated as such. Somebody had to have said to Julius the centurion, hey, this is Paul, yeah, he's a prisoner, but he's innocent. He made his appeal to Rome, he's going to Rome. The Jews have been trying to kill him for a long time. He's been in custody for over two years. Uh, give him a break whenever you can. He's trustworthy. He's honest. So, so help him out. That's probably the reason why his friends got to come. That's probably the reason why he got to visit friends along the way. That's probably the reason why he was able to be left on his own recognizance. Now I want to go back and I want to answer a question I brought up earlier. Why two years? Why two years in custody? Possibly. We don't know. One of the reasons, maybe the reason, but a reason why two years, was maybe this Julius, the centurion, was not in place to take on Paul as a prisoner. Maybe another centurion wouldn't have heard the call, wouldn't have been favorable, but Julius was. So maybe God needed the people to get into place so that the travel could be done so that Julius would be in charge of Paul, and that was part of his plan. So God arranged for Luke and his other friend to accompany him and to help him along the way. Interesting also that Luke is a medical doctor. And Paul is always a, a kind of a sickly fellow, so a medical doctor would have been really good. B, God caused Julius, the centurion, to show kindness to Paul, allowing Paul to visit friends and, and for care and sustenance. 
that's unusual for a Roman centurion. And, and, we, and I would say that God put that in his heart and mind as well. C, God provided a safe harbor in Malta after a bad decision was made to continue on. It was a bad decision to sail on. They were hoping to get lucky and just get up the coast enough to get to a port or a harbor that was an enjoyable place to spend the winter, not just a safe place. But God provided a safe place. Remember, they were swept out to sea. They were swept out to sea. This is the Mediterranean Sea. If you look at a map, you have the Mediterranean Sea. You can kind of see where they were going. There's just a few little dots out there, and then there's one large dot. That large dot is not big. Malta, if I remember correctly, is about 17 square miles. And, and in the Mediterranean Sea, that's not a very big dot. But God brought them specifically to a safe harbor where they would be greeted and welcomed and taken care of. That's a pretty big deal. Let's, let's fill in these blanks here. God brought them to a safe harbor. Okay, this was... Normally, the time to winter in a port, they shouldn't have been out there to begin with, so they were, they were dealing with the consequences of their own decisions. Two, the storm that came up was a long-lasting hurricane, lasted at least 14 days, so they're, they're suffering the consequences, and it's a dire consequence. They are literally being tossed about in a hurricane out in the ocean. Number three, God sent an angel to speak to Paul, telling him that everyone would survive the shipwreck. So God sent a message of encouragement so the, the crew would work together and, and they would feel better about this. They would, they would recognize God when what he said came true. Number four, God allowed Paul to gain the trust of the centurion. Remember when he said, hey, don't let those people go. If you let them go, it's not going to be good for them or us. So God allowed Paul to gain the trust of the centurion so that they stopped the sailors from deserting the ship. Number five, God directed the ship in the middle of a hurricane to land on a tiny little island of Malta in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea to an undeveloped harbor later named Paul's Bay. You can look up Paul's Bay. You can Google it today, and it's a bay on the island of Malta. It's called Paul's Bay because that's where they landed. That's where they found safety. And God did all that. He directed them through a hurricane. And then number six, the people of Malta showed that all 276 people from the ship unusual kindness, even to the point of supplying them all their needs to travel on and keep going. Unusual kindness. So God provided a safe harbor. D, God kept Paul safe from the bite of a poisonous viper. There was no question this is a poisonous viper. The people gathered around for the show. They wanted to see Paul die. They wanted to see him swell up. They wanted to see him convulse. They wanted to see what the viper was going to do because it always happened. To the point where when it didn't happen, they said, oh, he must be a god himself. That's how poisonous the viper was. That's how much of a miracle this was. And I, I'm assuming, we're not told, that this was a point by which Paul could share the gospel with them. That was a conversation starter for the native people there. But Paul was kept safe, even from the, the bite of a viper. E, God allowed Paul to minister to the people of Malta. Why, why did Paul wind up in the house of, of the guy in charge of the whole island? Uh, who knows? He wound up in the house, found out the father was, was sick, healed him. 
Then when word got out, all the other sick people on the island came. He healed all of them. So God allowed Paul to minister to the people of Malta, gain their favor, and then receive hospitality while on Malta. They were there three months. And supplies when it was time to leave. So God, God worked out a situation where Paul could serve them and then they could serve Paul and the rest of the people. And I believe God did that. And then F, God provided Christians in route, after they left Malta twice, he met up with Christians, in route to provide for Paul's needs as well as in Rome to meet him and encourage him upon his arrival. So God provided more friends, more people to help take care of him. So I want to I ask this question. What will God do if necessary to keep a promise? What will God do? God made, no, let's be honest. This was not one of those promises that's, that's an eternal promise. This was not a forever promise. This was not a promise that we claim. This is not a promise that, that we make this our life verse, that God will take us to Rome to do what we did in Jerusalem. It, it doesn't work that way. It's not what's happening. But it's a promise that was made to Paul specifically. And if, if he had died in the shipwreck, it wouldn't have stopped God from doing what he needed to do. If he had died when the snake bit him, it wouldn't have stopped God from doing what he needed to do. If he had been washed away at sea and we never heard from him again and he lived on a deserted island until he died, it wouldn't have stopped God from doing what he needed to do. He could have put he could have put Luke in his place. He could have put Timothy in his place. Could have put Barnabas or Saul in his place. Could have continued on. But God made a promise. Therefore, God fulfilled the promise. How certain are we that God fulfills his promises? Listen to what God did to keep this promise in a nutshell, 1 through 5. Number one, he used family, his nephew, friends, Luke and this other guy, and even strangers, the Roman centurions, the Roman officials, to protect Paul. So what will he do? He will use family, friends, and even strangers to protect you from any harm that will keep you from receiving your promise. If, if God has made a promise to you, he will do these same things to make sure that promise is kept. If you need family, if you need friends, if you need strangers to step in, he'll provide the family, friends, and strangers to protect you. Okay, he'll do that. Number two, he will provide friends to provide for, encourage, and care for you. It was Luke and Aristarchus in the, in, to begin with, maybe others. It was the people along the way. It was the welcoming party in Rome for, for Paul. He will provide friends to provide for you. When you need encouragement, if you need the encouragement to continue on to do his will, for him to fulfill the promise he's made to you, he'll provide the encouragement through friends. Number three. He will steer a ship through a hurricane into a safe harbor that has not even been officially discovered or developed, if necessary. How, how do I know he would do that if necessary? Because he's already done it once. Now, you, you're probably not going to be on a ship in a hurricane. I hope you are never in a ship in a hurricane. But if you are ever in a ship in a hurricane, and God has made you a specific promise that can only be fulfilled by you surviving the hurricane, then guess what you're going to do? You're going to survive the hurricane. That's one thing God will do. He will continue to do these things. Number five, he will win you favor. No, excuse me, number four. He will provide opportunities. He will provide opportunities for you to serve others and for others to serve you in a way that sustains you and preserves you for your intended future. 
If you, if you need to, to do something, you need to serve somebody, you need to build a relationship, you need to start a relationship, you need access to a community, you need to voice something for God, he'll provide the opportunities. And sometimes those opportunities will then turn around and, and be your own provision. Number five, he will win you favor with the people when it matters so that you can continue forward on his mission. He'll win you favor. These are all things did for Paul. These are all things he'll do for you. And these are all things I want you to think about and remember when you're asking the question, is God keeping his promises? Now, you might be thinking about the promise of eternity, the promise of, of the rapture, the promise of the second coming. You might be thinking about the promise of, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'll be with you everywhere you go. You might be thinking about any of these promises. Is he capable of keeping his promise? Absolutely. Is he willing to keep his promise? Absolutely. Will he do whatever it takes to keep his promise? Absolutely. And I just want to read some promises. i got five minutes left. I have a third page to my notes that I did not provide to you. It is online if you, want to, if you want to copy this. It's in your bulletin. So pull out that extra sheet in your bulletin that you didn't know was there for. These are just some promises. These are certainly not all the promises. Th these are just the, the, the first ones I came to, frankly, in a Google search. I thought, I'm just going to fill the page with promises. Whatever comes up, that's what we're, gonna, what we're going to read. We'll talk about them very little. Just to remind you of some of the promises God made that he will actually steer a ship through a hurricane to keep if necessary. All right? John 16, In this world you will have trouble. There's a positive promise. In this world you will have trouble. I promise. But take heart, I have overcome the world. That's the second half of the promise. I have overcome the world. Yeah, you're going to have trouble. There's going to be trouble because you live in the world. Other places we read, there's going to be additional trouble because you belong to me. They persecuted me. They're going to persecute you. In this world, you will have trouble. There's going to be normal trouble. There's going to be special trouble. But take heart. I've overcome the world. Which means, guess what? I'm in charge. I'm in charge of everything. Yeah, there's trouble, but don't forget I'm in charge. I promise. I'm in charge. When you can't see it, I'm in charge. When you doubt it, I'm still in charge. Believe me. I'm in charge. I will... Not let go of that. I'll do what it takes. Psalm 32, 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye upon you. God promises to instruct you, to teach you. He gives us his word to do that. I'll show you the way to go. I'll counsel you. I'll share my wisdom with you. And I'll do it in a loving way. That's a promise. When I go to God and say, I need help. He's like, I'm here for you. I will provide instruction. I will teach you. I'll give you wisdom. Psalm 37, 23 and 24. The Lord makes firm the steps of the one who delights in him. Firm the steps. Strong. Uh, not wavering. Uh, not teetering. In other words, the Lord gives strength to the one who delights in him. Though he may stumble, he will not fall. For the Lord upholds him with his hand. If you delight in him, if you seek after him... If you're, if you're seeking after righteousness, trying to serve him, uh, trying to obey him, trying to follow his will, trying to apply scriptures, if that's your mentality, if that's who you are, he says, I'm going to make you sturdy. I'm going to make you strong. And even though you're going to make mistakes, you won't fall because I will hold you up. That's a great promise. 
Matthew 11, 28, and 29, Come to me, all you are weary and heavy burdened. I will give you rest. The promise for rest. Some of you need rest. And to find the rest, you need to go to God. And say, God, I'm weary. I have a heavy burden. I need rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Latch on to me. Partner up with me. Let me be your guide. Take my yoke upon you. For I am gentle and humble in heart. I'll be easy. I'll take care of you. I'm going to assess what you need. I'm going to give it to you. And again, you will find rest for your souls. Maybe not freedom from the pain you're in. Maybe not separation from the issue you're in. But rest for your soul. That rest for your soul is a big deal. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. When you're having a tough time, I've got what you need. I can lift you up. Isaiah 40, 31, Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not go away. They will walk and not faint. We've already discussed similar things. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, Present your request to God. Tell me about everything. Tell me about your issues, your problems, what you're nervous about. Be thankful for them because it's an opportunity for me to work. Present your request to God. And the peace of God, okay, that's like rest for your soul, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, doesn't make sense to anyone else, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 28, and we know that in all things God works. That's promise enough. But not only does he work, he works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. He works for your good in all things. Isaiah 41, 13, the promise is, I will help you. Do not fear, I will help you. James 1, 5, if anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. It will be given to you. You ask for wisdom, he's going to help you have wisdom. He's going to show you the wisdom. Okay, we ask for it. James 4, 7, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. How do we deal with the devil? We submit to God and we resist the devil. We listen to God and we ignore the devil. We pray to God and we tell the devil to stop talking. Submit to God, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. And all my ways submit. The more I submit to God, the straighter my path is, the easier my path is. The more I'm moving in the direction He wants me to go, the more He's He's guiding me straight through the difficult times. In Hebrews thirteen five, I will never leave you, never will I forsake you. Never on my own, I'm never forgotten about. This is a sampling of the promises. And we can be certain that God will do whatever it takes within his power, which is unlimited, to make sure his promises are kept. He did it for Paul. He'll do it for us. The greatest determining factor for us to know what God will do in the future is to understand what God has done in the past. God has fulfilled his promises every single time in the past. He will continue to fulfill our promises in the future. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for... Paul's example, what you did for Paul, again, showing us your character through the life of Paul, showing us what, what you do to fulfill your promises. Thank you that we can rely on this, and we can trust this, and we can claim this. I pray that 
some of the promises we read today. Maybe there's one in there for each of us that we read it and we say, yeah, that's the promise I need. And I have confidence that, that you're going to fulfill that promise. You're never going to stop short. And, and I just need that to carry on. May the promises speak to our hearts. May the, the principle that you always fulfill your promises encourage us and strengthen us. And, and may the character on display that, that, that we can see in you, may, may that character also encourage us and give us strength that we serve a God who keeps his promises. Father, help us to reflect on this during the week. May it bless our hearts and change our lives. In your son's name I pray, amen.